Today is my um, father's birthday. He would have been 103. He died at 98 in 2015. And in the last uh, four or five years of his life, Tanisha and I had the uh, wonderful privilege of uh, taking turns while we were still trying to look after uh, the hermitage we were running in Dharmagiri in South Africa, KwaZulu-Natal. We would take turns to uh, uh, live with Dad. It was his wish to finish his days at the home he had built with mom back in 1949 out on Lake Chickamauga, outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, we definitely wanted to help him fulfill that uh, wish. I notice I'm very, very uh, tired today. And... um, But in a way, it's quite uh, in accord with remembering that time, that time of helping uh, uh, look after my father was was quite challenging in terms of my energy. Uh, Helping oversee his medicines and uh, cooking and uh, helping him with his pain. Um... But it was such a precious time. So even though I got uh, very exhausted and quite tired, I wouldn't uh, trade it uh, for anything. My uh, parents were extraordinarily supportive of us children where their main focus was uh, considering what they could do to make our uh, life as good as it could be in terms of educational opportunities, uh, giving us, uh, encouraging us and helping us have music lessons and going to camps and, and, and seeing that we had a, a really cultivating relationship with schools and trying to find the best schools and relationship with teachers so that they could really uh, help us. So I realize a lot of uh, gratitude. Uh, And my uh, parents took a lot of pride in our uh, accomplishments, the boys. And uh, so... uh, I went up to, been a wrestling champion at uh, Baylor High School in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then um, went up to the Northeast, to university at uh, Princeton, and uh, and then uh, uh, unexpectedly won a Rhodes Scholarship. And so my family was, uh, parents were over the moon, they were so proud and thrilled. 
And then uh, a few years into my Rhodes Scholarship, I uh, wrote them a letter and phoned them that uh, I was going to Thailand to, um, to a Buddhist monastery. And, uh, but I, I originally I thought I was just going to go for a couple of years, leave of absence, and then come back, finish my thesis at Oxford, then go back to medical school. Um, but my parents were really worried because in those days, as I, as I uh, joke, uh, Buddhists were thin on the ground in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, so they didn't have a frame of reference. What was I doing in this monastery near the Laotian and Cambodian border in the mid-70s when there was this whole horror of the Vietnam War was winding down but the catastrophe that it, from all the bombing and stuff that had happened in Laos and the, the rumors of the killing fields of uh, Cambodia and, and, this, and their son off in some jungle. And... Um, uh, but my parents were so caring, they decided, well, we're going to go out there and see. And, I mean, for my mom to, to, to look, she doesn't fit in a, in a Thai jungle. <laughs> um, Thai. But... She didn't mind. She, she wanted to go check, check. Because in those days there was uh, cults and they worried, you know, had I been brainwashed or abducted by a cult. And um, so they, they flew out to, to Thailand. And I always will remember the, uh, the incredible... We are contemplating kindness today, but the incredible kindness with which Ajahn Chah received my parents. He had time for my parents. The great master with scores of monasteries. And in uh, Thailand, when a child goes and ordains, it's a celebration. To... to, to the renunci- in fact, it used to be, I don't know if it still is now, for young men it was the way of maturing, you know, uh, to really be ready for adult life is to, to go and be a monk for a period of time. So there was a lot of honor in that society, but uh, Ajahn Chah had experienced it. So many of the Western parents were just horrified at their children giving up everything and shaving their head and wearing funny robes and uh, doing this practice. Uh, so he, uh, that my parents had made the effort to come visit, he really honored that and gave them time. And uh, he, on the spur of the moment, I, I wasn't supposed to be getting an ordination, but so that my parents could feel a part of my ordination he decided to, I was in white, a postulant at that particular time, what's called an anagarika. 
keeping the the eight precepts. But he wanted me to go into Brown and become a Samanera and and have an ordinations that my parents could participate in, that they would offer me the robes, they would offer me the bowl. And I, I, in retrospect, I really see the incredible kindness and wisdom of that. And um, and though they were quite, uh, they were not excited about me being in a monastery, they realized that uh, this person was a, that this was a real monastery, it was not a cult. They, they somehow felt the deep sincerity and, though they couldn't explain it, but profundity, sense of profundity of the uh, practice, what was going on there. And there was an occasion where, where my father was uh, quite worried about, because at least the reports back in America is how this communist insurgents and that we were on this border right near the trouble area and so my father asked Ajahn Chah um, but isn't this dangerous you know this is dangerous isn't it you know with the communist insurgents the guerrillas the and um Again, Ajahn Chah was very patient and said, yes, there's a danger. He said, but what's much more dangerous? And he pointed to his heart are the insurgents, the guerrillas, the terrorists in the heart that rob us, rob us of well-being, rob us of ease. Uh, rob us of our treasures. And he gave a, a, a beautiful talk about uh, really uh, contemplation and gave my parents a sense of the scope of the work that we were doing, that we were engaged in a in a battle, but a, a, a noble striving to not just go along with the stream of being hijacked by the greed, hijacked by the aversion and the anger, hijacked by the confusion and the delusion, but to really investigate. And, um, and so my parents offered me this bowl and these robes and participated in the ordination and offered, offered Ajahn Chah a meal. And they helped get the food and prepare the meal for the Ajahn Chah and the monastic Sangha. And to this day, I feel so grateful for that. And, um, and over time, my, my parents really got to, to, to respect and appreciate this uh, this practice, uh, this this lineage, this stream. Uh, at one point, when uh, 
of course, I had my bowl and, I, you know, everything out of the bowl and, and all the food that you eat is put into the bowl. And uh, one day my father told me, I, I think I understand your bowl now. And he was just saying, you know, some people that never are going to get enough. They'll never, never, ever have enough. Always want more. But this learning to be content with what's in the bowl, what is put into the bowl. Learning how to honor what is put into the bowl. Learning how to rejoice and be with and understand and metabolize what's placed in this bowl, this life span of ours. Ajahn Chao is, uh, in a way, quite simple with his teaching, with such a profound presence. He would often reduce the, the Buddha's teaching, simplified in this form that's called the Awada Parimoka. Sabapapasakaranang kusla supasampada sajitapariyotapanang Etang Buddha Nasasana. Refrain from evil. Lift up, cultivate the good. Purify your heart. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Sapapapasa Karanang. Ah. Karanang, not to do, not doing certain things, not acting on certain things, not speaking on certain things. Remember the first night of our retreat when we undertook the refuges and precepts. And remember how the Buddha talked about this not doing. Might look so negative. Oh, you Buddhists are quite negative. Don't do this and don't do that. But this not doing is called the the five great gifts so that a not doing involves a conscious restraint, involves the opportunity to sense and listen into these <laughs> insurgents, these, these, these streams that are so seductive and beguiling. They say, me. They seem to be me. The Buddha said that they're a thief that we mistake a thief for our son. We think it's our child. We think it's... And we, we're following. Get into trouble. But with this foundation of restraint, learning not act in ways that harm, speak in ways that harm self and other. Looks like a little thing, but it's a big thing. Because remember what the Buddha said you offer to measureless beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. By by refraining from the harmful. So then our life is then connected, 
because all these countless beings, seen and unseen, when there's that commitment in a heart, just that much of virtue, our abiding is a, is a wide mandala. That's what's called a measureless abiding when there's virtue. Kusala Supa Sampada and the bring forth the good, lift up the good, which is what we've been doing. Giving ourselves to this practice, cultivating mindfulness, bhavana, training the heart, allowing the treasures of the heart to, to blossom in terms of composure. Cultivating patience, kindness, compassion, the skill of how to enjoy the simple, to rejoice in a breath, to rejoice in in the, the joy of being awake and aware, to cultivate equanimity. And then the sajitta pariyota banang, to purify the heart. from confusion, from afflictions, from distortions, so that our true home can reveal itself, so that this endless wandering can finally pause. Ajahn Chah talked about this activity in the following way. He said, quoting Ajahn Chah from, his, from the book of his talks called Being Dharma. He said, there are the sciences like mathematics, physics, psychology, and so on. You can delve into any number of them, but you can only finalize things with a realization of truth. Picture a cart being pulled by an ox. As the ox walks along, the cart leaves tracks behind it. The cart wheels may not be very big, but the tracks will stretch a long way back. Looking at a cart when it's standing still, you can't see anything long about it. But once the ox starts moving, you see the track stretching out behind you. As long as the ox pulls, the wheels keep on turning. But there comes a day when the ox tires and throws off its harness. The ox walks off and leaves the empty cart. The wheels no longer turn. In time, the cart falls apart, its components going back into the four elements, earth, water, wind, and fire. As you go searching for peace within the world, the wheels of your cart turn ceaselessly and your tracks stretch endlessly behind you. As long as you follow the world, 
There's no stopping. No rest. But if you simply stop, the cart comes to rest. The wheels no longer turn. Creating bad karma is like this. As long as you follow the old ways, there's no stopping. If you stop, there is stopping. This is how we practice the Dharma. Purify the heart. Seeing the changing nature, the ungraspable nature of things, then dispassion can set in. The futility of endless grasping reveals itself. It can little by little be the relinquishment, the stopping of grasping touch into peace. Who does all this belong to? But in the process of practice, we we come into, we face all sorts of afflictions. They come. It's very easy to get discouraged. I was so full of determination. I wanted to get there quick. There was a lot of good effort there still was uh, a greed in my practice. And as I was mentioning earlier today, I don't think I had enough kindness in my practice, kindness with the residual greed, hatred, and delusion that one needs to patiently metabolize. I just used huge willpower, taking up tough, Practices, tough ascetic practices and, and, and wanting to get there quickly. I found myself getting sick, had diarrhea for like six months. And I started urinating blood and ended up in a hospital for a while. And I started just noticing just how much disease there was in the mind, how much lust in the mind, how much frustration, delighting in the pleasant states, but just being... feeling like it was too difficult. 
I went through a phase then where I uh, everything seemed too difficult. Sitting on the monastic platform, you know, once a week we would sit up all night. Each time I'd be determined, I'm going to do it this time. Sit through the night like a rock. Break through. I can't remember when we started the evening. I don't know, six or something like that. And by, you know, 7.13 or something, you know, I'd be already nodding, looking up the line, more bald heads, looking down the line, row of bald heads. Yeah, I'd be awake and they'd be nodding, but then I know I would be in there too, nodding. And um, Uh, asked the abbot at that time a uh, someone called Ajahn Pabakaro he had been a helicopter pilot in the Vietnam War and then gotten discharged and became a monk became a very good monk he could speak Thai and Laotian so fluently that if you didn't see him you would just think he's a Thai person or a Laotian person. And so I told him, look, I'm I'm really, it just feels impossible. I would be very grateful if you could take me to see Ajahn Chah and help me have a conversation. And uh, so he was happy to help me out. So I was at a branch monastery uh, for the international Monks, not only Westerners, but there quite a few of us were there. And he he took me a few miles away to the main monastery, Wat Papong. And uh, during the evening chanting, all the other monks were at the chanting, but uh, Ajahn Chah was in his hut. And uh, Abakro had sent the message that uh, he was going to bring me to talk to Ajahn Chah. So, so there was Ajahn Chah sitting in his wicker chair. His hut was on stilts above us, and we were on the like marble floor underneath the hut. And uh, he was in his chair, and I um, we bowed to Ajahn Chah, and. He just said in his uh, usual way, Binyang, well, what is it? Yeah. I said, uh, Ajahn Prabhakar was helping me translate. I said, Ajahn Chah, it just feels like uh, my mind's a mess. I'm, it feels impossible. So much lust, so much aversion. It feels like I'm, I'm never going to laugh again. It, everything's just gloomy, impossible. I had made all this effort and it just felt like it wasn't working. And he went, hmm. 
And, and he started asking me about my life before I was a monk. He wanted to hear about my wrestling, all my training. I'd been five-time Mid-South champion and a national champion and competitive. Mm, he was listening about that. Mm. And then at uh, one point he says, you remind me of a baby chipmunk. <laughs> and so Babakro says, he says, you remind him of a baby chipmunk. <laughs> uh, so I said, it was some sort of like squirrel chipmunk, but it could, it was quite acrobatic. And I said, oh. So he starts this story and he said, this baby chipmunk or squirrel, whatever it was, this creature that could really climb in that family of creatures, saw its mother going up the trees, jumping from branches to branches, and thought, I'm going to do that. And so it ran up and jumped and dog in time, which means fell down. And kind of, so his head shook. And Spabakro, you know, translates, whispers in my ear. And this uh, little baby chipmunk started crying. And... And um, and uh, mother said, uh, "Mother, said, you got to go to school." So this baby chipmunk goes to school, starts learning tricks. Could go up, jump here, jump there. Dog fell down, crying again. And you got to keep going to school. So you can imagine this is all being talked and whispered in my ear. And and then. Uh, uh, so this chipmunk was, you know, high school, college. And, you know, at some point, uh, you know, because we had masters and PhDs in there. And at some point I was rolling on the floor, uh, just hysterically laughing. Meanwhile, Babarco was still whispering in my ear that, you know, this uh, he's carrying on with his training. And, you know, I, I stand up and uh, sit up finally, and Ajahn Chah's in his chair leaning over, smiling. And he said, uh, you know, after this chipmunk had gotten a PhD, I think, and one day he said that chipmunk could do everything its mother could do. <clears throat> he just looked like that. And from the crown of my head, every cell in the body was like shimmering and tingling with, with joy. You know, yeah, falling down, get up, falling down, get up. But, you know, this training, this path will succeed. It's in our nature. I was just rejoicing, amazingly. And then Ajahn Chah started talking and he said, I didn't understand. And Pabako said, "Uh, but he says you also remind him of a donkey. And I'm thinking, I'm not ready for this donkey story. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm still, just hold your horses. I'm still, you know, the donkey story came. And, uh, and so, all right, let's hear this donkey. But uh, there was some good news there. The donkey was an industrious donkey <laughs> because it, it was clever. And it, it was really enjoying the music of the forest of the cicadas. You know, like the crickets, the, the insects were making this music. And this industrious, clever donkey said, I'd like to do that. I'd like to make music. 
So, but it wasn't a stupid donkey. It was clever, so it was going to do some investigation. Now, that's dumb of a chaya, isn't it? And it realized, oh, they, the cicadas or the insects were eating dewdrops in the morning. <sighs> of course, of course. <laughs> so this donkey, being very industrious, licked tens of hundreds of thousands of dewdrops and then opened his mouth to make music and was so disappointed. And the story stopped. They were, well, well, wait a minute. And for years, I blotted out the donkey story until <laughs> Tanisra resurrected the donkey as important. <laughs> and this, this donkey... Reminding us that we we honor this body. We find our sound. Our wisdom, our insight is all manifested right in this body and mind. And that you know, putting it all out there. Just being like somebody else. Yes, we can be encouraged by somebody else, but we, we, our nature is in this body and mind. It reveals these treasures of the heart. Finding our true sound. Being kind and patient and disciplining, learning how to tune this body and mind. And so the two, the two stories, if they both work together, this baby chipmunk, we're in some sense babies on the path in light of the great masters, but we're cultivating we fall down. We're going to keep falling down, picking up. But the falling down, rather than to be hated, that's a noble truth. Dukkha. We learn. We metabolize that. We begin again. And we'll, we'll succeed because our true nature is calling us. It's here. It's because we're looking in the wrong place. As it says in the Dhammapada, you won't find the sage out there. No footprints in the sky, you won't find the sage out there. The sage is, is in here, in the heart. So we listen in deeply. In these difficulties, he, he also told us, don't be in such a big hurry to get rid of your afflictions. I so wanted the enlightenment stuff, not the other stuff. I wanted the peace. But the afflictions, they're the friction. 
It's not that we just follow them, but we, 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 we don't just follow them, but we feel them. We investigate them. They become our teachers, our sharpening stones, where our wisdom comes from. And my father, whose birthday it is today, when he collapsed, he said, well, why didn't you just let me die? I said, well, Dad, we were sitting with you at a restaurant. And at the restaurant, the waitress was emergency medically trained. And there was a policeman in the restaurant. And that restaurant was right next to a hospital. You should have let, let me die. Because he was so, he'd been so, since he was a child, he had to take over adult responsibilities. His mother had such crippling rheumatoid arthritis. They were running a little grocery store on market in Madison in lower Manhattan. And so his mom and dad could get a little break. He would, even when he was in, really young, 10, 11, 12, take over the store for hours at a time. Incredibly dutiful, loved service, loved helping others. His whole sense of purpose in, was to impart wisdom and to help others. So then when he, when he was ill, you know, I'm useless. Just put me down like a horse. <laughs> I said, Dad... You so enjoy helping others. Can you imagine the possibility that people like me, Tanisra, others would be really interested in helping you? And one thing my father didn't know how to do so well was to receive, receive. And yes, there were some ways that he was helping, but he... And in that whole process whereby we would be together, those years, hospice people thought he would go uh, six months. I think it was five years. We, this incredible transformation, transmutation happened. He, he wasn't easy, but letting go of power, realize this body is, and that will is, it's not a permanent possession. But he really learned to graciously work with pain, graciously work with loss of power, graciously allowed himself to be helped and offered in different ways. He became like a resident rabbi on Prairie Peninsula and uh, long flowing white hair and he was wise. He was very wise. So that uh, by the end of his life, there was just uh, a lot of love. Yet I was in over my head. My own energy wasn't so good. And trying to keep up with all these medicines. And, and 
then also there were things that he wanted me to do that I didn't feel capable, but then the, these particular hospice people couldn't do stuff with his toenails and you really needed some kind of specialist, but he didn't want to get them, wanted me to do it, and I was worried if you do it wrong, you get a split, you get an infection. And he had all this chronic pain, and that's when I, I used a lot Kuan Yin's name, the Great Compassion Mantra. Namo Kuan Chi Yin just returning my life to the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world. Saying to Kuan Yin, look, I don't know what I'm doing here. How can I do this? Namo Kuan Chi Yin just go to the listening. Do everything very carefully. Very carefully. A lot of great compassion mantra, which has uh, got the power to, to bless. The power to bless. The power to dissolve obstruction. The power to help put things right. So uh, a lot of that was my practice. Namo Kuan Chin Pusa. As I worked with my own exhaustion and the challenges and the difficulty and, and being with my father with the, the considerable pain and, and physical challenge that he had. And he was just such a uh, treasure. So had he just collapsed and died, we wouldn't have had that opportunity to get so close. So I encourage us not to hate our afflictions, but to breathe with them, work with them, and to use our uh, prayerful practices, devotional practices, to help us find the, the power and the strength to keep beginning again. And to take heart that this this dominature, this luminous heart is always right here, beckoning us, inviting us. Finishing with a quote from Ajahn Chah that Tanisha and I love. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surrounding, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come and drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha.
gratitude to our parents. Gratitude for our teachers. Gratitude for our afflictions that demand that we stay alert and mindful, that help us cultivate strength and patience, skill. Gratitude to the Buddha, the awakened one, whose virtue and blessings are showering us even here, 2,500 some odd years later, in a forest in Massachusetts, who laid out a path reminding us that this treasure is right here. May the blessings of our lives joyfully be shared above, below, and all around with all beings near and far, seen and unseen, good and bad. Because we're all of one substance. May all beings be freed from suffering May all beings be awakened to the beauty of this heart.
So good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.